Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 138, and the rains have soaked the fur trickers for weeks under the Drakensberg, and that was through much of the start of 1838. However, by winter, by mid-year, things were drying out, which was going to be bad news for the Amazulu. The Boers were coming back to deal with the Zulu king, Dingana, and this time, they were better prepared. The world was undergoing some other major changes, including the climate. Explosive volcanic eruptions in the late 1790s had led to vast quantities of dust being thrown into the stratosphere and this had had a short-term effect on temperatures around the world. Nowhere on earth was safe. In southern Africa, for example, it had exacerbated droughts for most of the three decades of the 19th century. The fact that the fur trekkers were being rained on in 1838 was something of a return to normal after the long dry. According to scientists, the most sustained period of stratospheric dust was between 1807 and 1830, precisely at the point dominated by Shaka and then Dingana in the eastern part of southern Africa. There's a very close link between history and climate. In the northern hemisphere, records had been tumbling. Unlike southern Africa, there were summers in the north of continuous rain. Grain harvests had failed completely in Germany and France and the British Isles. Then Tambora exploded in Indonesia in 1815 and spread more ash far and wide and has now been blamed on what was being experienced by the Northern Hemisphere. A dust veil had swept over the north and distorted the normal wind patterns. In the Eastern Cape, the drought patterns had complicated British settler lives between 1821 and 1823. A searing drought which drove most of the new farmers off their land to become more embroiled in hunting and commerce. Tree ring analysis shows how precipitously the climate variation affected Zululand in particular, and that was in the first two decades of the 19th century. While this is not really the main reason that the powerhouses of the Amazulu became so centralized, it was all part of the cause of the social and political change. By the 1830s, the introduction of new farming techniques around Port Natal, or what was now being called Durban, was a revolution. I mentioned this in earlier podcasts, and for good reason. Crop cultivation had increased and surpluses were now being reported. The growth of the large black peasant society in Natal during the first half of the 19th century was a significant event. Dingana was now outraged by how the former refugees that had fled his rule had apparently appeared to prefer living around the port than return to Zululand itself. The fact that he had taken to burning down the Umizu of chieftains he didn't like didn't help his cause either. So the English traders who were now taking up arms against him weren't just an irritation, they were becoming a centre of power that threatened the Zulu king's power ethos. Upcountry, while the Boers were considering their next moves, planning to conquer Dingana, the British further south were facing a conundrum. If they left the Fortrickers to do what they wanted, there was every chance that the interior of southern Africa would become more unstable rather than less. This may be difficult to comprehend, but back in the late 1830s, The expansion of the trekkers throughout the interior was thought of as a threat, not a stabilizing factor by the English authorities. They didn't see it as Christians subduing the heathens, rather as unrestrained expansionism by a group of people not under their control. Reports began to circulate about the Americans, and nothing in those days put the fear of God into the English more than the Americans. 
perhaps the French and the Americans, to be more accurate, but you get the picture. The French concept of a republic and a revolution had been exported around the world, and the Americans in particular had a liking for egalité, fraternité, et al. So when a few American ships began to nose around Port Natal, now Durban, the English authorities back in the Cape snapped to attention. The Boers who left the Cape were not initially imbued with the firm idea of founding a state or a number of states. Their immediate objective had been freedom, to live the old way, to be beholden to themselves and their God. In Britain, many were crying out about the expense that the Cape Colony had incurred, particularly with respect to the troublesome eastern frontier. There the tension between the English settlers and the Amatosa continued unabated. So by considering what to do about Natal, the authorities back in Cape Town, particularly the new governor Sir George Napier, had been opening up a political can of worms. Napier realised that the foot-trekkers were gone for good, just like the early Western pioneers in the United States who began their own series of treks westward. Most never returned to the eastern states either. Another major event shook the Eastern Cape in 1838. Andri Stockenström was going to resign for the second time after he had taken off back home to Sweden in the previous decade. The land, which the British called the Ceded Territory, the English settlers called Virgin Land, and the Amakosa called Their Land, the Buffer Territory between the Fish and the Kaiskama Rivers, was now back in full frontal view. The folks with their eyeglasses trained on this land were the settlers, who had ignored the rule that neither side, neither they, nor the Amakosa could encroach on it. But gradually, it had become part of the Eastern Cape Colony. With the eastern part, the Kaiskama River, the boundary between the Cape Proper and Kozaland. Stockenstrom had signed a treaty with Amatkoza that they could use part of the ceded territory, and here was the problem, because the real boundary, he said, was actually the Fish River, further east. After that treaty, he was denounced by the editor of the Grahamstown Journal, Robert Godlinton. Then again, this was a journalist who was literally calling for the Amatkoza inside the ceded territory to be exterminated, regarding them as vermin. This ceded territory was never in control by anyone by the late 1830s, and Stockenstrom eventually gave up and resigned, departing once more. He handed over his system to the new British government representative, and watching all of these handing overs as usual were the Amatkosa who remained on the eastern bank of the Fish River. Stockenstrom had told the settlers and his own government that it was useful to have Amatkosa family units settled on their farms here, in his words, and it is better for themselves and for us that they should be domesticated there, to be living there with their families and property, so as to have something valuable at stake on the spot. Rather, they should go there secretly as warriors. Godlinton disagreed with that view, and vehemently. Oddly enough, it was the settlers who were already setting up their family units in the bush alongside the Fish River, operating in a kind of high-risk, high-reward basis. The second reason why Stockenstrom had been so vehemently opposed by the English farmers was the manner in which he dealt with stock theft. Under his treaty system he'd signed with Amatkosa, it was actually the farmers who were responsible for the protection of their cattle and sheep. They were not supposed to let them roam around, but be kept under guard because the Amatkosa were prone to rustling. Stockenstrom pointed out that because the settlers had got the land cheaply, they'd have to institute their own system to protect their own property using the cash they'd saved. 
Then he banned armed commanders from following up rustled cattle in Orsaland. But as we all know, folks, having a law and enforcing a law are two very different things. So Stockenstrom bade his eastern frontier goodbye and was replaced by a military man called Colonel John Hare, who arrived in 1838 with a kind of defeatist attitude and was almost immediately out of his depth. His main job was to tussle with the settler-inflaming issue of cattle theft from day one, and from day one he was all at sea. Colonel Hare could not speak to the local languages, neither Dutch nor Isikosa. He relied on information from two sources who were like yin and yang. Opposite but interconnected forces, and in Chinese cosmology, the universe creates itself out of primary chaos of material energy, organized into the cycles of yin and yang, then formed into objects and lives. These two chaos-ridden forces were Charles Lennox Stretch and John Mitford Bowker. Charles Lennox Stretch was what you could call a liberal, or at least a humanitarian, resolutely so, and despised for being so by the people of Greater Grahamstown. On the other end of the spectrum was John Mitford Barker, whose solution to the challenges of rustling were basically to ethnically cleanse the frontier of Amakosa in totality. Barker was a raw man of the felt, aggressively anti-black, who loathed the missionaries and did so even more stridently than the Boers. Bowker wanted the humanitarians to be hanged. No, wait, he said hanging was too good for them. Everything that Charles Lennox Stretch, however, stood for, Bowker wanted broken, and vice versa. These two were Colonel Hare's prime source of information. More than a century and a half later, in a place called the Siskai, a Bantustan leader by the name of Charles Lennox Sebe would emerge, named after this humanitarian from the 1830s. Our strange and twisted history, throwing pearls of irony before the swine of fundamentalism. While Bowker yowled and lamented the loss of cattle and sheep, Stretch found himself attached to the Nglinka people, the most prosperous and powerful of the Amakosa. And the new chief, as you heard a few episodes ago, was Sandile. Still around were Makoma and Jali, who'd fought the British in the Sixth Frontier War. You'll remember them too, if you followed this series. Stretcher's residence was in the beautiful Amatola Mountains at Tumi, while Balka found himself closer to the coast, near the Nklambe in the Kunukwebe line of the Amakosa. And Balka spent most of his time trying to prove that Nklambe was a smidgen away from fermenting another war. Of the two, Bauke and Stretch, we have much in the way of original writings. Stretch left a comprehensive diary that documented cattle theft along the eastern Cape frontier. Makoma and Charlie had told Stretch that as far as they were concerned, there were two types of cattle thief, black and white, like yin and yang. Lurking in the background here was Robert Godlinton, Every aegis has to have a spin doctor, and like we heard with Tingan's Izibongo, prose poets who created a filtered history, so too Robert Godlinton. The editor of the Grahamstown Journal was determined that this frontier would have a crisis. One armed British governor, Sir George Napier, was not a fan of Godlinton's point of view, and extremely conscious of his government's reluctance to fund military misadventure. The last thing Napier wanted was an unnecessary war because the English taxpayer would be coughing up for that and they saw the Eastern Cape and in fact the whole of the Cape as worthless because it was unprofitable. Godlington knew though he had an ace up his sleeve. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of English settlers, potentially Napier's biggest risk. 
babes in arms, peaches and cream beauties, hard-working good men and women, you know, the very flower of the English, endangered here, in darkest Africa. At least, that's how Godlington described the situation. Threatened by savages just across the Fish River, he said. Napier, in turn, described Godlington as the leader of a cabal. For swarming around Godlington were folks who Napier called conniving traders, famous for gun-running from Grahamstown and profiteering greatly from all the wars. Each war meant more material, more horses, more cattle, more cash, and merchants know how to make money from wars. The way the journal described matters, every horse, cow, and sheep had gone missing, along with most of the oxen, all stolen by the Amatrosa. The newspaper published unverified facts and statements. No one checked the stats. Depredations, nay, the ravaging and laying waste, pillaging, looting and plundering, endless stories of favourite oxen being driven off into the night. Stockenstrom had told the settlers to gird their loins and get out into the bush, patrol their land, show some grit. Instead, they turned to a form of social media, circa 1838, the Grahamstown Journal. The Amatrosa were, of course, raiding and rustling. The cattle were on their doorstep, and only a couple of hundred soldiers were thinly stretched from the Amatola Mountains down to the Indian Ocean. Anonymous writers who all seemed to use the same style sent many letters, a surreptitious correspondent who Napier said was John Mitford Bowker, one of his own agents. Bowker was a tough man, he regarded Colonel Hare as a bunny, a soft, useless man, and ignored Napier's warning about stoking anger, so Napier fired him. That sent Bowker into an endless letter-writing cycle. Far from falling silent, the now radically embittered Bowker turned himself into the unofficial leader of the British settlers, popping up at public meetings, writing interminable op-eds in the Grahamstown Journal, now openly same style as the surreptitious scribe of before, giving voice to what was described as the most exasperated of all British colonial settlements of the late 1830s, the district of Albany in the Eastern Cape. Back in Durban, the English traders were planning an attack on Dingana's Amizi for a second time. Their first had gone so well, and they were supposed to be coordinating their military manoeuvres with the Boers, if you remember. Mzolbo had ambushed the Boer commander at Italene and put it to flight, killing eight foot-trekkers, including war hero Piet Ace and his son, 15-year-old Durki. Dingana now put his half-brother, Mpande Kaasenzangakona, in charge of his army. He was going to send to teach the Durban traders a lesson. While most of Dingana's brothers and half-brothers had been killed after he'd bumped off his other half-brother, Shaka, he'd left Mpande alive. There's a lot of speculation in Zulu oral tradition about why, but mostly it was thought that Mpande was average, too unassuming to be a political powerhouse, too self-indulgent. That's what some said about Joseph Stalin too. It was going to be double jeopardy for the Durban traders because they had let a certain sanguinity reign after their successful raid at Dinganas and Tunjambili Mbizi during the last week of March 1838. The traders were honouring their agreement with the trekkers that they'd support an attack on the Zulu king and were supposed to coordinate their assault with Ace and Portkita's commando. The second front to the south, so to speak. Dingana understood the greed of the traders when he told his Indunas that the traders would be back for more. They'd looted his cattle once and he said, they will return because they have tasted good things. 
One of the men who was definitely motivated by greed rather than honour was a 26-year-old called Robert Bigger. Alexander Bigger was one of the earliest hunter-traders at the port, and he had a number of children, both with his white wife and his black wives. One of his coloured sons had already perished when he was sent to warn the trekkers along the Blokrans and Bushman's rivers of the Zulu army's imminent arrival. You may remember that. George Bigger was shot in a classic case of friendly fire by one of the Boers who thought he'd joined the Zulu raiders. So Robert was itching for revenge, but he'd been back in Gramstein when the first Ntunjambili raid took place. Now he was very interested in the opportunity for an easy second win against the Zulu. John Kane and John Stubbs agreed with him, while the missionaries who were based on the Berea said it was not wise to conduct the second strike. It would further antagonize Dingana. Ogle was one of the few to listen to the warnings and said he'd actually set this assault out. Ogle, of course, was still smarting from the conflict he'd had with John Kane during that Ntunjambili raid, so it could also be he was just being obtuse. However, we mustn't forget that Ogle had been living in Natal for 18 years and was nervous about the Zulu king's power. Thus, the Grand Army of Natal was constituted once more. This time it included 18 Durban traders and hunters, all armed with muskets, dressed in their jackets and their boots, ostrich feathers arranged perkily in their hats. They also swung swords and cutlasses from their belts, while alongside them were 30 Khoisan hunters and about 400 African retainers, all of whom were armed with muskets. That was quite a lot of firepower, if used properly. Unfortunately for this grand army, it was not going to be used properly. In addition, 2,500 African warriors joined the Grand Army, armed with their traditional spears and shields. Most were refugees of Shaka and Dingana's actions, and they were itching to settle their own scores on the Zulu, who'd shattered their lives. So, dear listener, it is always with a heavy sense of irony that we relate our stories here in the South, because here is another. On the very day that the Grand Army left Durban, the 10th of April, 1838, the Fuertrekker commander was being defeated in the hills near Mgudlovu, and Ace was being speared. Instead of being in a position to split Dingana's army, they began to walk into a larger army because Dingana could reassign the veterans of that earlier battle of Etaleni. An ominous development that the Grand Army knew nothing about. Robert Bigger led most of the army out on the 10th, while John Kane followed with the rest on the 13th of April. Good Friday. The two divisions met up a day later on the 14th and marched up the coast. On the 16th, they reached the Tugela River, about eight kilometers inland from its broad mouth at the Indian Ocean. Scouts were sent to check on the best crossing, and they saw Glockweni Drift as the best place. This is where the large John Ross Bridge is today over the Tugela, where the main highway runs a few kilometers south of Kwadukuza. However, the scouting party had to defend themselves against a group of Zulu warriors, but this didn't appear to perturb Bigger nor Kane. The scouts also reported that, lo and behold, there on the north bank opposite the drift, hundreds of unattended cattle appeared to be wandering about, chewing the cud, lying in the cool April breeze, doing what lazy cattle do on a hazy April day in Zululand. John Kane smelt a rat. It was a trap, said Kane and recommended that the army remain on the southern bank. Bigger 
was worried that the army's morale would be sapped as they bided their time, their mouths watering as they watched the fat Zulu cattle wandering around. This looked like easy pickings, said the 26-year-old. Easy meat for a well-trained bunch of musketeers. The African levies were also raring to go, and a heated argument ensued between the commanders of this tempestuous army. Robert Bigger won the day. The cattle were just too alluring, but promised they would limit their foray across this mighty river. On the morning of April 17th, Bigger led the men as they forded the river at the Tugela Lower Drift and advanced a few kilometres northwards towards a large umuzi built on the slopes of the Indulinde Hill. Ndonda Kasuka was its name, and it would live in infamy hereafter, at least for the Durban traders. What this army did not know was that the missionary Captain Alan Gardner, who had his station nearby, had Zulu spies in his midst, and these were passing on information of the Grand Army's movements. Thus, an empire of more than 7,000 men had already arrived close by. They knew where Bigger was going, and they had camped close to Ndundakasuka on the night of the 16th of April, hiding in the valleys to the north and the northwest. Mpande Kazenzangakona had plans for Robert Bigger's raiders, and they were terminal. Furthermore, Mpande's Amabuto commanders were legends, including one who was probably the most feared commander who had survived since Shaka's days. The fierce Nkosi of Ndondokasuka was a man called Zulu Ka Nogondaya. He was covered in wounds from battles and a real fighting elder. He was afraid of nothing. Some called him a lion. Buta was the man who was the Induna of the Umkuluchani Buta, who hailed from Kwa Kangela, and he joined Mpande along with Nongalaza Ka Nondela and Madlebi Ka Mgedeza. Nongalaza Ka Nondela was an interesting man. He'd led the Nyandwini people and been appointed as the commander of the Utlomentlini Ubuto that had been raised by Shaka on the eve of his assassination. Nongasala was also Mpande's principal military commander who had the important function of ensuring the army was cleansed spiritually before any battle. They had been purified first at the Amakosini Valley. Now, on the eve of this significant moment, they were doctored once more by Nongalaza. Mpande was actually quite close to home. He had been spared by Dingana during the bloodletting when Shaka had been assassinated and been permitted to live in some grandeur in his Ekanda called Mlambongwenya on the Matugulu River, which was only 20 kilometers north of the Tugela. That Dingana had put him in command of the Zulu army that was going to face this grand army of Natal made sense, and Mpande had also built quite a following in the south of the region. As the grand army crossed the river and advanced on Ndondokasuka, one of the most significant effects of the coming battle was not only going to be felt by the settlers, it was going to shift power allegiances away from Dingana, with fatal consequences for the Zulu king. What happened next? is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have an inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can also head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. There's an email contact form there. Or through X directly at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.